Hey, Dad, what do you do when you're out with friends? The waiter comes up and tries to take everybody's order, but the whole table freezes up, and everyone's looking at each other trying to find some help. Mm, that's a great question. So what, what should I do? You should have some confidence, Dad, or as our friends at Jägermeister call it, shotfidence. If everyone's having trouble ordering, here's what you do. You take charge, you grab the bull by the horns, you find that dog in you, and you make an executive decision. And just order for the table a round of ice-cold Jägermeister shots. Damn, that's cold. Because apparently, we've all been drinking Jägermeister wrong. Did not know that. How should we be drinking it? Glad you asked, Dad. We should be drinking it ice cold at zero degrees Fahrenheit. Well, that brings up other things that I love ice cold as well. And I'll tell you right out of the gate, that's going to be a candy bar pulled out of the freezer. That's my way of eating candy. Oh, I love it. On the golf course out there, you get to the turn in the middle of the round there, and you get to that little clubhouse there, and they've always got the candy bar options, and I always see they've usually got a little box of them in the freezer, and it always makes it better on a hot day out on the golf course, taking a bite of that cold, cold chocolate and getting ready to go for the rest of my round. It's the same way with Jägermeister. So wherever you are, if you're hanging out with friends at the bar, call the shots. Cheers with ice-cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume. Imported by Mast Jägermeister US, White Plains, New York. Lots of things go better together. Hockey, food, golf, peanut butter and jelly, Gojo and Golik, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. What? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Gojo with Mike Golick Jr. That is me. With me, as always, a man whose wife claims to be retiring from candy, Brandon Newman. Brandon, what's going on? <laughs> Nothing much, Mike. Uh, how you doing? How you doing today? I, there's a question I wanted to ask you. Oh, yeah. How are you enjoying this Taylor Swift album, uh, Many Midnights Afterwards? Yeah, you know what, Brandon? I'm glad you asked as we get ready for a really good podcast today. We're very excited. Monday Night Football to react to the zapping. We got top five, bottom five from the NFL weekend. That was a conversation with Peter Burns from the SEC Network about what we've got going on in college football right now. Inching closer. I didn't realize, Brandon, November is next week. Yeah, and that's the end of college football season. And Well, not anymore with the the playoffs but it, it's kind of the beginning of the end it's not it's not august anymore oh, yeah. damn sure it's not august it's not august and it's not september but it is still in the wake of midnights like you asked and brandon uh yes. it's been sensational i probably listened to that album i felt so bad for the producer on my college football crew because sunday morning we were driving to the airport the game finished a little before midnight we got back to our hotel around one in the morning we had to get up at 3 30 and leave to drive to pittsburgh from uh from state college which is about a two and a half hour drive and i just let what is essentially a hour and 15 minute album play through multiple times during the car ride 
I just, I just, it's just hard for me to believe, Mike. I, I will, I will take your word for it. So, are you uh, strictly on the three a.m. side of things? Like, how are Taylor Swift fans handling two versions of the album? So, I am still taking it through as one giant mega album with the three a.m. songs, the seven of those attached to the thirteen original. I can tell you, I still spend a lot of time with the finisher of the first album. Mastermind is, I think, the best finisher on an album Taylor's ever had. Yeah. I found myself starting with Maroon instead of Lavender Haze. It's just something that's kind of tickled my mm. fancy. And uh, I've been doing a lot of Antihero and a lot of You're On Your Own Kid, which I said felt like a weaker track five from her, but is growing on me by the day. So those are kind of the machinations that we've gone through. Well, I, I listened to it in full. I agree with you. You're On Your Own Kid didn't do it for me, especially when it comes to track fives for Taylor Swift's catalog. Um, and outside of that, you said there's an R&B track. I, I feel... Listen, I'm not going to judge because everyone who's obsessed with Taylor Swift says this is like top three albums from her, like off of first listen and like second listen. So everyone's like really, really moved by this. Like, okay, I get it. I live in the darkness. I was born in it. Uh, Welcome, Taylor. Uh, And uh, I'll take your content. Well, I, you know, I would say this, Brandon, like a lot of people in listening to the review of this album are excited that she's back to making pop music. This is very much a poppy album okay. in so many ways, and we haven't had a lot of that from Taylor in a while here, so it's excited to have that version of her back. So I'm glad you at least gave it a shot, Brandon, and tried to listen to it. You appreciate Thanks. you meeting me halfway on this. Of course, of course. I want to listen to what you're listening to. Now, wait a minute. I also want to listen to what you're listening to before we get to uh, a Monday Night Football game that ended up surprising and exceeding a lot of our expectations. Brandon, you said right before we were getting on that your wife was like talking about being done with candy or quitting candy. How did this conversation come up? Because I'm fascinated by it. Okay, so we just recently traveled. I told you we went to uh, Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg for my mother's birthday. Missed all that great football that was last weekend or two weekends ago at this point. Uh, obviously, when you're on the road, we stopped at Bucky's. Gas stations, you get a bunch of things you think you need to stay away, candy, snacks, X, Y, and Z. So we got a bunch of leftover stuff in the house because didn't nobody eat anything while I was on the road. There was a thing of Rolos left over in the pantry, and she devoured them. And then later on, we were talking about Halloween and things, and she says, yeah, I'm done. My candy days are over. I'm like, what? Your candy, candy days are over. My candy days are over. Yeah, and then I was like, cause she was like, I need something sweet, and I was like, oh, I got some uh, Reese's pumpkins, like in the in the thing, getting ready for Halloween uh, next Monday, and she was like, oh no, that's too much. I think my candy days are over. I'm like, you just housed some Rolos. You love Carmelos. Like she was like, I'm not. I don't. I don't buy this stuff. I only get it when you buy it for me. I was like, well, I'm not done buying you candy. So I don't think your candy days are over. It's just such a wild claim to make. Now, now we are talking about somebody who did give up hard alcohol in college after a drunken night senior year, and I was I've been very surprised that she's continued to stay away from it. But come on now, whose candy days are over? I'm just more concerned that if your candy days were over, your last choice would be a Rolo. Like if you're essentially on candy death row and you're getting your last meal, would you make it a Rolo? Probably not. I mean, I don't. I mean, if you're a big caramel fan and they, and you like uh, ashy chocolate, I think Rolo's uh, definitely known for the ashy chocolate. Um, but I, my yeah, my last candy, Mike, it's got to be like a take five. Ooh, see or frozen fast break. 
of the of the of the Reese's variant candies, Fast Break to me is the is probably the one. I think it's the most underrated candy bar in the game. Fast Break. Oh, I mean, it's it's that nougat is powerful. Oh, it's strong. The it's nougat. Important. It's so good. <laughs> It's really like unmatched. The king size fast break is like oh. it's too much, but it's also just right. It really is. I'm overloaded by the end and I feel terrible, but that soft bite towards the end of it when you do hit the little bit of nougat at the bottom. Because normally candies are about an abrasive texture difference. Think of like a Twix and that yes. literal crunch you get on the inside, which Twix, by the way, would probably be my number two on this list of answers of the candy I would finish that. off my candy career with. I don't understand that. My our good friend, my good friend Joy Taylor, she Twix is like her number one, right Twix and left Twix. So I think it's number one and two for her. I don't understand. It, like cookies are great. I don't need the cookies and the things mixed. But like if it was my last candy, Mike, I'm very gourmet with mine. It would probably be actually a turtle. Turtle. You know those turtles. You know, don't look at me crazy. You know, turtle. How? I had no idea you were this rich. <laughs> oh my I, god! I mean, my Hide talent. the money, y'all. There is poor people round. <laughs> Turtles are delectable, delightful. That pecan, that caramel, ashy chocolate. Still guilty of having ashy chocolate, but um. <laughs> You know, the dry, chalky chocolate. I guess uh, if your but. chocolate needs lotion, it's probably not a good place to start. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Um, Can we talk football? Brandon, even, yeah, I can say an even better place to start. Monday Night Football. And I know we're probably wrongly lumping um, Monday night into some of the primetime fiascos we've seen on Thursday night. But mm. Bears and Patriots wasn't a matchup that on paper I thought inspired a ton of confidence. Now, I have to shout out both teams for their endeavors because they provided me with the first so far this season. We've been doing the uh, six thick picks at the end of each week, three college, three pro, and for the yes. first time, went 3-0 and on the NFL side of things. My parlay hit. We got paid out because the Patriots and the Bears decided to hit over 40 in this game. So thank you to the Patriots and the Bears. Thank you to the Jets, who got plus one and had victory in their game this weekend. And then thank you to the Dallas Cowboys for winning by over a touchdown. All of your efforts are appreciated. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Amen. Amen. And also, Mike, look yourself in the mirror. Thank you for the research. You made that pick. You made a you made an educated uh, guess or pick with the I don't know. You did your research. Congratulations. Yes, did my own research on this, which is okay to do in this particular <laughs> avenue. But all of it led to Brandon a game where we got way more bang for our buck than I bargained for. So the Bears won thirty three to fourteen in a game where the first headline should be Justin Fields and the Bears offense physically dominating the Patriots, especially in the second yes. half of this game. The rushing attack for this team combining for 243 yards on the ground against this New England Patriots team that not too long ago very much shut down a Cleveland Browns run game that's one of the best in the league. Obviously different in that Justin Fields is a huge part of the run game for the Bears, and especially in the first half, so many of those rush yards ended up being scramble yards when the play broke down. For how difficult this year has been to evaluate Justin Fields, I think last night still had plenty of the bad, right? Justin Fields in this game took four sacks, some of which you can attribute to the quarterback for holding onto the ball too long in situations where he should have gotten rid of it. But then you get spots like before the end of the first half where 
they take a penalty or he takes a sack on first down. Then the next play, he breaks off for a 30-yard run. He continues to be way... Like, I, I truly think south of Lamar Jackson, he's the fastest quarterback in the NFL. I know Daniel Jones... I don't say that even jokingly has a place in this conversation, but south of Lamar, I truly think Justin Fields is probably that dude. Yeah, I think uh, we used to always talk, call it going high school, Mike. Uh, if you watch the old high school highlight tapes in football, you can cross the field. Like the difference between uh, Justin Herbert is he literally can zig and zag. Like he's he's moving very quickly. But he seems to be still like looking for the next thing to do. Where like I think like Lamar Jackson when he's taking off and running, he looks like a, a runner. Like Justin Fields looks like a quarterback running, just like faster than we've ever seen a quarterback move. I, that's probably a good point because I think Lamar is a much more natural ball carrier as yes. far as the way he runs. Like there's a difference when it comes to quarterbacks being guys who can take off, scramble, get you yards in a run versus guys that have legitimate skill with the ball in their hands like a runner. It's not to do any of the you know racist stereotype stuff that happens before the draft of these guys. It's right. merely to say as a tool in your bag, you're better at it than most. Justin Fields isn't far behind though, and so you had that rushing attack that had a huge part to do, but Dave Montgomery, David Montgomery, Khalil Herbert's been awesome for them, legitimate breakaway speed and just in general this offensive line got banged up during the body of this game it wasn't like they got out of this thing clean and they still managed to lean on the Patriots down the stretch of this game albeit aided by some turnovers as well in the second half well yeah before we move completely off Justin Fields Mike I think you said you saw a lot of bad from him I don't know Mike I feel like we just ran in he ran into Matthew Judon like he ran into one of the most uh decorated uh, pass rushers in the league right now uh, under the radar obviously because me and you talked about we didn't realize he was leading the NFL in sacks but obviously he can get after the quarterback and the Patriots defense is kind of one of their calling cards is as up and down as the offense has always been you can lean on the fact that Bill Belichick is going to have a defense that looks competent at, at, at any point uh, at least and at home Mike Justin Fields what we got the chance to see him do you you uh you badmouthed my uh, praising of him after that monsoon game week one against the 49ers. And what I saw from him there was I saw from him here, Mike. He's just a playmaker. He leans a little bit too much on Mooney. I think there's other people that can catch those balls. But he is an electric playmaker. Well, I'll say one thing. I don't know if there's a lot of other people that can catch those balls. It's not necessarily a Bears team that has a ton of weapons in the wideout room. Cole Komet's a good tight end. Good book, you know, guy that can block and catch for you in the wide receiver room. Nikhil Harry got some cheers that night or jeers that night, I should say, because yeah. he was coming over after being on the Patriots for so long. And he caught a big time pass in this game for the Chicago Bears. That's how bereft of talent they are in the receiver room that let Allen Robinson walk this offseason. So I want to give Justin Fields some credit for having to overcome a lack of weapons. True. You look at like Zach Wilson in New York and what they have done for him in drafting weapons around him to try and make his life easier year that hasn't happened yet regime change in Chicago that's not to say that Ryan Poles and this group might not do that at some point but it's not there yet and what I do worry about is some bad habits because Justin Fields tends to hold on to the ball too long everything is an effort to try and make the biggest play to overcome it and when you've got his kind of ability and you've been able to do that your whole life I'd imagine that's a hard thing to break but at this level to become the quarterback he wants to become eventually that's going to have to happen so you still see some of those in there there were plenty 
plenty of on-time throws. There were some good play-action shots in the middle of the field tonight where he dropped back, hit that back hitch, and fired the ball in there in the middle of the field. There were good looks mixed in there, in addition to the spectacular plays as a runner he can make, in addition to the plays as a part of your design running game that he can help you with. And this was a definite step forward for him. It's just still there's room to grow, which is good, which is what you want for this player to just see that they are growing into something because that was the worry when he got drafted here and the coaching change happened is do you lose this guy to the rigors of being a young quarterback in this league who has one, two, three, you know, multiple voices that are in your ear and in your playbook early on in your career because we've seen that fuck plenty of guys up. Yeah, I mean, something else that fucked plenty of guys up is getting touched up a little bit too hard. I mean, I feel like they are not refing these quarterbacks, the, these rookie quarterbacks, right? They're, they're waiting for the, the veteran guys to get touched up. Like, But, I mean, Justin Fields, he's been getting beat up pretty much all season long, but every game there's that one, there's that one uh, tackle, there's that one – uh, roughing the passer that's not called that is that we're like looking at him get up and like Troy Aikman's championing how tough he is I was like wait a minute when are we talking about quarterbacks being tough anymore like usually they're protected <laughs> yeah I, it's a good point and in this game there was that one clear instance uh, Justin Fields ends up throwing a screen against a zero blitz. So everyone's up at the line of scrimmage. They check to that screen, and he actually holds the ball for another extra second to let a defender clear up field. So he gets a window and throws it out. I forget if that was to Khalil Herbert on the perimeter or not. But either way, that play goes for a touchdown, and Justin Fields gets sandwiched between two defenders enough after the play that based on the way they legislate that in this league, I did expect that to be the case. And this shouldn't be one thing where it's, you know, you've got to earn it the way sometimes you hear people talk about rookies versus veterans in this league right. he's a quarterback he's a young one and he's a good one he's the exact thing you're trying to protect if you're the league office and so the fact that that flag wasn't thrown we sit up here and bitch and complain plenty about bad roughing calls throughout the nfl there are plenty of them where you see defensive linemen try and roll off the hit pull up and have it only be a gingerly you know a gingerly administered hit all these things that i can justify complaining about that in this one you had a quarterback pretty much pretty well after he got the ball out sandwiched high by multiple guys I'd have been pretty okay with you throwing the flag there. And this goes back to kind of what we talked about, Brandon, for years is if you're not careful and this becomes the way you're officiated, people will try and lump that into him being a mobile quarterback. That's what happened to Cam Newton for years when in actuality, a lot of the hits that were detrimental happened in the pocket and were not officiated that way for one reason or another. And you can use your imagination on that, but that's the last thing you want to see for field. So you're right that that was a portion of this for Justin, but overall step forward for them on that side. Let's get to the juicy side because the Patriots had themselves a time in this game. So Mac Jones had Love been missing it. the last couple of games with a high ankle injury. Enter fourth round draft pick out of Western Kentucky. One of the record-settingest quarterbacks in the history of college football as far as single season passing prowess, Bailey Zappi. And Bailey Zappi had come in and played pretty well. Now, Bailey Zappi had come in and played pretty well despite the fact that he looks exactly like Mac Jones in ways that I cannot readily identify them being different people. I I wanted them to put them on the field at the same time so the space-time continuum would rip because I feel like it would be a sci-fi movie where you're not allowed to see yourself in the past and like enter into yeah. contact with each other or else it messes everything up. That's how identical twins these guys look. Let Looper. Uh, yeah, I think... I, I think- you talk about it a lot, and I was—I didn't really give it any 
credence. I didn't think about it that much. But when you look at them in the helmets, Mike, and you're looking at the faces behind the face masks, I mean, they're twins. Twins. I think Mac Jones twins. is significantly bigger. Not significantly, like, bigger. Like, Bailey Zappi looks like a smaller human out there. But in the face, same white guy. Same same exact white guy. Stock Wee characters. If Zach Taylor was an NFL player at this point, he would oh, be Bailey. Yeah. He would be he would be Mac Zappi or Bailey Jones. So um they start off this game. Mac Jones cleared um back active after the ankle injury that had kept him out, gets the start in this game, goes three for six for 13 yards and an interception as the Patriots offense stalls out in the beginning and then gets pulled in the uh in the first half. Enter Bailey Zappi and Brandon. It was a roller coaster to ride going into this game. Bailey Zappi comes in and almost immediately, whoever calls the plays on this offense, we still haven't figured that out, whether it's uh, Joe Judge or Matt Patricia, whoever mm-hmm. calls the plays starts dialing up the fun ones. They're throwing these big play action shots. You're getting dudes wide butt naked open down the field. And Bailey Zappi makes a couple of nice throws, one of which ends in a really long touchdown, um, I believe, to Jacoby Myers. And from there on out, yeah, Bear crawled into the end zone. And we're like, all right, we've seen every Zappi pun. It's Zappening, Zappi Gilmore. All of them (laughs) just tossed onto the timeline. And I greatly got a punnable name. Awesome stuff from him. He's on the sides, sidelines stinging Stacy's mom and doing it like LeBron where he only knows about five of the words and is just vibing his way through the rest of that shit. But everyone's eating it up because it's zappy time and he's going to Wally Pip Mac Jones and the same white, you know, all of these things are going to happen. And then it's gone. Like, <laughs> Brandon, you pointed this out first off. I missed the halftime interview with Bill Belichick uh, or Lisa Salter's update coming out of the halftime locker room that Bill Belichick had tried to claim this was the plan all along to get Mac this amount of reps to have Bailey go in and then to have Mac Jones come back in, which he did not the rest of this game. (laughs) Mark, it's a crazy spin zone. Only can be done by Belichick, who was trying to be the second most winningest head coach uh, in NFL history, playoffs and regular season games combined. But the Bears said, "Nah, you ain't getting over our coach, uh, you know Hollis or whatever his name is." But who, he's the Bears. The Bears made sure that Hollis, yes, the Bears made sure that that Belichick didn't su- uh, surpass a Bears record. But Mike, the fact that. They came out the update with this information. They didn't know what to do with it in the booth. Like, Joe Buck was like, uh, that's interesting. I guess it was the plan the whole time. We should be seeing Mac Jones back out there. And guess what? Mac Jones played his part because he had his helmet on, hyping up the crowd, telling them to quiet down when the offense was out there. He was the first person to congratulate Bailey Zappi when he went out and got a touchdown. He was he was just sitting there with his helmet on like we used to when we weren't getting in the game, Mike. Do you remember those days? And he was just sitting there moving around on the sidelines like – are we going to see Mac Jones? No, we're not, because that was not the plan. He got benched. There's a quarterback got, controversy in New England. Well, I don't know if there is anymore, because Bailey Zappi went out there and stunk it up for the rest of the second half, ended up throwing one pick in the first half, one pick in the second half. The offense never really regained its footing. He finished 14-22 to for a buck 85, one touchdown and two interceptions, but did not, like... 
Bailey Zappy Bailey Zappy Mania lasted all of about I'd say half a quarter before it started to just devolve into both of these guys look kind of average and are in an offense that doesn't have a ton of weapons around him either. But Brandon, I think part of that with Bill Belichick is, and I will bring this back to Taylor Swift. You watch my ass do this. <laughs> Bill Belichick for years has listened as we in the outside world looked at every move the Patriots made. And every time they were involved in a trade, every time they made a roster move, it was, oh, they know something that we don't know. Oh, they've got a player that they're not going to pay second contract money to and someone else is going to sign him. Watch that player's productivity punt while the uh, while the pa- uh, Patriots are able to draft some guy late in the draft and get just right. as much production. He was always right. He was a mastermind. And Bill has heard that for long enough to where now even he believes that he is one step ahead of himself in the moves being made out here on the field. And he is constantly in control. And that is the difference with Taylor Swift is on this album, you had an admittance from Taylor Swift on tracks like Antihero that me, me, I'm the problem, it's me. Understanding that, yes, as we all look internally, occasionally we will err even when erring on the name of doing something great the way Taylor Swift and Bill Belichick both have. Not that same admittance, not that same humility from Bill Belichick, which leads to this moment with Lisa Salters. How about that? It was good, Mike. It was good. I, I did a quick look at Midnight's rundown, the track list, to try to see if I could pull something out of my ass to, to rebut. I don't have anything. We well, can, we how, about, how, about, how about this then? Um, can we start the conspiracy theory that Mac Jones was benched because he kicked Jaquan Brisker in the dick? Yes. So in this game, Matt Jones goes to slide. First off, looked kind of fast. I half joked that when they benched Mac Jones, they left his dual threat ability on the bench and are really going to miss out on that. But Mac Jones took off and got a couple of first downs with his legs. And on one, he ends up pulling up and sliding, spikes up, and kicking Jaquan Brisker right in the nuts. Mm-hmm. Not to be undone a few plays later, as Mina Kimes aptly put on Twitter, balls don't lie. Jaquan Brisker gets a revenge interception on him and gets him sent to the paint. And so you have to wonder if that was the final straw, if the revenge interception off the nut kick was the last straw for Mac Jones out here getting his Grayson Allen on. I was going to say, we knew Mac Jones could run. In the preseason last year, we saw him gritty a little bit after a big run. Like we, we've seen Mac Jones do his little run thing, right? But I hate that he is. I hate that the Patriots logo, Mike, and the helmet is seeped into his play. That he's out there doing dirty shit, like kicking players in the nuts. Like this just feels like Tom Brady. Like this just feels like, like don't do this. Don't be. Don't be Draymond or. Did Draymond got hit by? Yeah, Draymond hit. No, Draymond. Draymond hit. Yeah, Draymond. Draymond. You could throw Chris Paul in here too. Yes, yes. We talked about him yesterday, but yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't like that, Mike. I didn't like that, and I think Bill Belichick is a student of the actual game. He's like, you listen, you don't. And he's also a defensive guy. He's like, I don't yeah. know if you, I don't. Th- I don't think Bill Belichick liked him kicking a, a defensive guy, and then that's like the, he clipped. He, he clipped him, and he and he flipped Mike. Like he got kicked in the dick and then flipped. A dick flip. Like it, I, it. 
<laughs> I know. It's bad Let's news all it. around. I, I'm, I'm genuinely interested now. I'd imagine Mac Jones gets the starting, starting nod again from here on out. But I don't know what the leash looks like anymore for these players. Because, again, I don't think one is markedly better than the other. I think they both have weaknesses. Mac Jones' arm strength certainly not going to light up the world. Everyone talks about processing as a strength for him. But there's also only so much you're going to be able to do in that offense that if it can't rely on the ground game to go out there and beat up, and credit to the Bears' defense for standing tall the way they did, forcing turnovers the way they did. It was a big night for Roquan Smith in this game. I just don't know how much there is there, especially when we talk about coaching there. Let's throw Mac Jones a little bit of that love on the other side. While I don't think talent-wise he was ever going to have the gifts to be a top-flight quarterback in this league, having your offensive coordinator go from Josh McDaniels, who was proven good at that job. We're not saying head coach. We're saying oh coordinator proven good at that job, to having two guys that were a failed special teams head coach and a failed defense uh, coordinator turn head coach now in charge of your offense is a bit of a game changer for the development of a young player yes 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 and I think we have to understand that he is good and was good talking about Mac Jones uh, but I, I don't like the narrative that everyone's just jumping out you included saying like it's 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 Mac Jones job now after what we saw from Bailey Zappi tonight like I I still feel like there's a spark with that offense, I feel like the Devontae Parker and that Kentucky to Kentucky connection uh, from from Bailey Zappi. Like I feel like I feel like the offense moves a little bit crisper when well, Zappi's out it, there. It did for a series, and then it went back to not doing very well. Like. That was Brandon, that was a spark that didn't lead to a fire. Like anyone can go out there and hit Flint and make sparks for a little bit. It didn't catch. The Bears, though. Uh, you don't think the Bears are a part of that not catching? Well, I think they are, but I guess the point is if you're going to say one over the other and Mac Jones was the guy you thought was going to be the guy last year, outperformed a lot of people's expectations, and then came into this season and got hurt and, yeah, almost got Wally pipped. Like, I know people say you don't lose your job to injury. They're wrong. It happens all the time. I'm just saying we didn't see enough from Bailey Zappi to definitively say, yeah, it's going down for real. Now, it's Zappi time, quote, Bailey Zappi. Um, So I think Mac Jones (laughs) is still going to get the nod by nature of that first-round tag right now, but they've shown a willingness to do this, and I look forward to all sorts of games with zappy time in it i'd like to believe brandon that as someone in a hospital in boston was watching from the delivery room tonight at the height of zappy fever during the beginning of the first quarter and a half of this game and their child was brought into the world and named bailey that they will have made a mistake they can't come back from as bailey zappy a mania weighed into the second half and now that kid will have an even more awkward story to tell about their namesake than bailey zappy who was apparently named after a character on the show party of five that i have never seen don't know anything about other than it exists yeah i'm with you mike i think it was a tory spelling aaron spelling uh creation but other than that i got nothing yeah i have nothing the the i would say the uptick in google searches for party of five based on bailey zappy are the best thing to happen to that show in quite some time so we will uh let that one simmer and wait to see what zappy mania holds for us next um for a lot of people in the afc east gotta be a very kind sight the patriots now in last place in that division which after their dominance and their reign of terror for so long there people are gonna get their punches in right now so new england fans thoughts and prayers but you guys have had plenty of good runs so i'm not really gonna worry about you all that much All right, guys, let's talk about Jägermeister. 
They could have written a totally normal ad here, like a really classic ad. They could have talked about their history, the 56 botanicals. It could have been all salesy and cutesy, but they know you don't care. Jägermeister doesn't want to be like all those other ads you've seen and heard. They just wanted to say two things. Jägermeister is great, but everyone has been drinking it wrong. Damn, that's cold. Drinking it wrong? All right, if that's the case, how should we be drinking it? They are so glad you asked, and so am I, Dad. I'm here to help you. Ice cold is the answer, at zero degrees Fahrenheit to be exact. Ice cold shots of Jägermeister. That's it. That's all they want to tell you. So wherever you are, if you're hanging out with friends or at the bar, call the shots. Cheers with ice cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume, imported by Mast Jägermeister US, White Plains, New York. Instead, Brandon, I'm going to worry about getting us to top five, bottom five. It's Tuesday around this show. This is what we do each and every week coming off the NFL weekend. The top five things, the bottom five things before we get to our conversation with Peter Burns about college football. Now, you are in the penthouse. I am in the outhouse. Uh, We go five Mm -hmm. to one, alternating, starting with the bottom five. Uh, So, Brandon, I will uh, kick off this party for us here as we start top five, bottom five. And I'll say bottom five, Jared Goff, although this is five for a reason because I think you can spin zone it. Jared Goff had a four turnover game, two interceptions, two fumbles that ended up recovered by the opposing team. Obviously bad. And we don't like seeing the frustration for Dan Campbell and this Lions franchise that we came to love during hard knocks. That being said, one of the things I thought before the season, dumbly, because I'm stupid, was that O&D line-wise, they had raised their floor enough with the moves they made at those positions to maybe be a little bit too good to have a high draft pick. And I wondered if Jared Goff would be enough because they're, I think, quarterback, especially a deficiency on that roster that's keeping them and holding them back. Jared Goff may actually prove to be capable enough to allow them to pick high in next year's draft and to have the option of going and getting one of these young quarterbacks that are coming out, which while it might suck this year, and I'm sure we'll call into question Dan Campbell going in next year, maybe even some hot seat conversation, could be the best thing long-term for the franchise to be bad enough to be at the top. They deserve to be there, Mike, but it's sad. And we knew this was going to come because it's the Lions. Oh, I know. It's not great. I feel bad about it. Brandon, save me. What's the what's number five in your top five? I mean, you got to go with Geno Smith and his resurgence at quarterback and the way he's able to lead this Seattle offense that was supposed to be doing nothing all season long, and now they're at the top uh, one of the top scoring offenses in the league. Uh, he leads the league in completion percentage. Mike, uh, he, he ranks fourth in, in QBR. He just looks like another human. He almost looks – he looks better than he did at West Virginia. You know, I know Stormy said we got we got West Virginia, Geno, but he looks even better than that. He looks like he, he actually had a leap of sorts. And he's saying that his slump early on with the Jets was uh, akin to – Peyton Manning's rookie slump Aww. and said sometimes fans uh, quit on you way too early. Okay, now I, I, I put you in my top five, Gino. I believe in you. I made you my spooky lock of the week only because it was you at the helm. Let's slow down comparing ourselves to Peyton Manning. Let's just come, let's just enjoy the I, ride, finish the season out, keep, 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 keep proving me. Let other people make that comparison, Gino. 
You know what? I Part of me understands where you're coming from, and part of me appreciates. The only reason I'd imagine he got here after being on the shelf for so long is because of that unwavering confidence in himself. That man got punched in the face as the quarterback of the Jets by someone in his own locker room. To come back from that and be able to resurrect your career to this extent is incredible and a very appropriate place in your top five. Um, number four in my bottom five, Brandon, uh, Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady choosing to be old and bad at the same damn time. Uh, two guys that appear to be hanging around the bar a little too long for everyone's comfort level. Differences that we talked about yesterday, but in the end, it all leads back to this is, while I understand people who are going to delight in this for various reasons. Maybe you lived under the Tom Brady reign of terror in the AFC East for so long. Maybe you dislike Aaron Rodgers and the things that he's said and done off the field. But these guys were so good for so long in my football lifetime that watching them potentially go out sad like this really kind of sucks. I'm I'm leaning on the fact that it's not the end, right? I'm, I'm leaning on the fact that it's not the end because at the end of the day, Mike, these two... They were leading the MVP race last year uh, and, until it was announced that one of them won it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm I'm not ready to completely give up on them because of the recency of it. But, yeah, it's going to be sad watching them next year. That's, that's the other wild part, too, is, like, if Tom Brady's really getting divorced, he ain't hanging up the cleats. He's got nowhere else no. to go. He's about to go one of these – he's about to go to Carolina. About to go somewhere. I, 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 a, I a joking, note. not, I joking, not joking. Wondered if David Tepper, who is this hyper aggressive, I will do anything to make this franchise successful owner for the Panthers, wouldn't try and pick up the phone at halftime and call the Patriots and see what's popping with Mac Jones. Uh, what do you got at number four in the top five, Brandon? Speaking of Mac Jones, come speaking of Monday Night Football, Justin Fields. Leading the Chicago Bears in rushing and passing yards in their upset against the Patriots. I know we just talked about it ad nauseum, but I really do think it's an important part of his career. And for the Chicago Bears fans who haven't really had anyone to to look forward to at the quarterback position and lean on, and they blow out the blew out the Patriots. No, they definitely did. So a lot of credit goes to him for that. Definitely with you. Big important game for him. Um Number three in my bottom five, Brandon, and I think this is going to mirror with something that you've got as well. Um, the Jets, unfortunately, had to make some moves that we can talk about because of the injury to one of the best young running backs in the league in Brees Hall, who now along with, and I would say for the bottom five here, number three would be Jets injuries. Brees Hall, the starting rookie running back, and right tackle Elijah Vera Tucker uh, both suffered season-ending injuries. ACL and meniscus for Brees Hall and for Vera Tucker, he will have uh, surgery to repair a triceps injury. And Brees Hall was probably going to end up being the offensive rookie of the year based on the trajectory that he had been on. He had been sensational, really explosive, looked every bit like one of the most dynamic athletes at that position. And Vera Tucker started the year at guard, and as they had to put, I think, two or three other tackles on IR this season, he was able to kick out there and really help steady things for them, the former USC product. So shame to see for both those guys. Obviously led to the Jets going out and uh, trading for James Robinson from the Jags today, but hate to see that and hope that both of them get to speedy recoveries and get to be the players that we believe they can be yeah mike it's hard to see a a, a really really good team 
lose an important piece, especially a team that's not traditionally good like the Jets. Uh, but number three for me, top five NFL week seven, New York City football. The Jets, five and two, second place in the AFC East. The Giants, six and one, second place in the NFC East. Yeah, I guess they're both East, so I got tripped up there. But yes, that's that's what it is. Two of the best teams in the AFC and the NFC. Uh, two teams that are traditionally terrible ass. Uh, all the things, and it's kind of nice to have them. I don't think we ever experienced these two teams being powers like this. Obviously, we had those Super Bowls with Eli Manning, but they were just kind of coming back, and those were all wild card teams kind of winning. It's it's interesting for us to be blue blood people. Like, you know, it's better when the Cowboys and the, the, the Notre Dames and those teams are winning. I didn't realize how great football would be with New York City teams winning. Yeah, and I, I feel like the Jets are probably more surprising even on that front. They haven't been good since the Mark Sanchez teams with Rex Ryan that rent to three straight AFC championship games, which feels like an eternity ago because that franchise has been so mismanaged for a while. We talk all the time about what a cursed franchise the Chargers are. The Jets would like a word because they have crushed hopes and dreams for a living for quite some time. And you're right, it is, it's nice to see that. I would hesitate like... I struggle with calling them two of the best teams in the NFL, but they're two of the teams that you can actually trust right now to go out and be competent in a game. And boy, oh boy, that seems to be in short supply during the first half of this season. They're both built a lot better up front on both lines of scrimmage than they have been in a while. Daniel Jones as a quarterback has offered you a lot with his legs and has been a good game manager. And Zach Wilson's getting that chance to grow with some of the weapons there. It sucks that he's going to lose one of those big weapons. James Robinson will be a help to them. James Robinson was a productive player giving way to Travis Etienne and his explosiveness and I think that's going to be the biggest delta between what they got and what they lost Brees Hall one of the most explosive players in the league James Robinson especially coming off an Achilles tear certainly not that level of jump when he gets the ball um Brandon we'll go back to the top uh, bottom five here the other big story of the day outside of the Jets and New York Giants and the New York football good was the decision made by the Indianapolis Colts, Matt Ryan getting benched in favor of Sam Ellinger, the former Texas quarterback, after their loss to the Tennessee Titans, where Matt Ryan sustained a grade grade two uh, shoulder separation. Um, Frank Reich said that Ryan won't play or practice this week because of the injury, but he said that this move was intended to be for the remainder of the season. So they're turning the page on this one, which could be a real uh, inauspicious end for Matt Ryan. Now, Frank Wright came out and said, quote, this is a point that needs to be made crystal clear. And I told this to Matt. I said, Matt, we did not hold up our end of the bargain. You came here and we promised you a top rushing game and we promised you great protection. And we haven't as an offense delivered Mm. on that. And that starts with me. That was basically my message to Matt. And that's all well and good. And it's the reality of the situation is Matt Ryan, we talked about this yesterday and the style of quarterback that he is when those things aren't working well you need to try and get a look at Sam Ellinger because this franchise has to finally figure out what the fuck it's going to do at quarterback. That's become abundantly clear as now they've realized we don't have the luxury and this is what coaches talk about all the time is you can learn a lot more in losing sometimes. 
You've now lost enough to know the foundation you thought you had is broken and is not there. And so what are you going to do starts with addressing the most important position in football that you've kind of neglected for the last few years and said, we'll plug it with the next best available veteran player that we can find coming out of their situation. And that's not going to be good enough anymore. So it starts with taking a look at what you've got in house with Sam Ellinger. And then it ends with figuring out if that's going to be enough. I don't think it will be. Sam Ellinger's a tough kid, was mobile enough as a college player, but isn't a dynamic enough athlete to go out here and affect the NFL like that. Doesn't have an overly strong arm. He's a guy that leadership quality, like you have those fun and tangible things, but I just don't think his gifts are at a place where that's going to be the long-term answer. So they'll get a look and find out what they have. But ultimately, this is about this franchise turning the page, I would hope, on the way that they've been going about evaluating and filling that position. You're worried about Rodgers and Brady and how they're going out. They've had their success. They've had their time in the sun. They've had their spotlight as the number one, as the face of the NFL. And not that I ever expected Matt Ryan to be that because he was never at that level. But this is a sad way to go out. Matt Ryan's getting replaced by Colt McCoy 2.0. You expect to see Matt Ryan starting as a quarterback for the end of the season, correct? Uh, no, they made it clear that they. I don't. I think that's understandably not the plan for them. I think they are going to try and let. I mean, let's put it this way: if he was, it would only be because of injury. That's that's what I think at this point. I think, and what I mean by changing how they evaluate that long term is you've got to find something that's more than just a couple year answer. You've got to invest in that position and say we are going to put meaningful capital behind someone we think can be here for a while and isn't coming over from somewhere else at the end of their best days because that's what they've yeah. had. Philip Rivers was at the end of his best days. Matt Ryan at the end of his best days. Even though we thought they both had some left in the tank, and Philip kind of did. Carson Wentz was a reclamation project because your coach had a relationship with the guy. You've got to go and actually find someone that you think can either grow into this role or still has years as a starter left. Like We've talked a lot about what Derek Carr's future looks like. I think he'd be a fascinating choice for that potential replacement. All these things that I just hope change based on if you're going to make this decision and make it as clear cut as this it does suck for Matt Ryan who I think has been a really good pro for a long time and I think took a lot of undue hate at times when he was playing good football on bad teams but this needs to be about the Colts changing their ways going forward um so yeah that was the other real big news of the day that one that bomb dropped in the middle of yesterday and uh definitely surprising to an extent that they would come out but they were i appreciate very frank about it and very open and transparent about that decision which is all you can ask for from a player's perspective tell me the truth be clear about what the parameters are so that i can understand this going forward and i'm not hearing a bunch of stuff that doesn't match the actions going on behind the scenes um that is a big downer brandon so why don't you take us back to the top five so that we can have some fun again talking about fun joe burrow i mean we all had fun Watching him at LSU, uh, we had fun with him with the Bengals. We were worried about when he got injured, and it, we were all shocked and all that his run that led the Bengals to the Super Bowl last year as the AFC representatives. But yesterday, or Sunday, Mike, he had his fifth 400-yard game in three years. He went 34 of 42 for 481 yards and three touchdowns. Uh, A lot of that coming in the first half. uh, Jamar Chase is huge, and he's acting like it yet again. That receiving core is uh, dangerous, and Joe Burrow is the most dangerous of them all. 
Yeah, no, he's... It's nice to see them getting that back. I was very curious if the start to this season was really going to be a sign of the times and a true bit of regression, but Joe Burrow still confirmed bad man. Jamar Chase still confirmed bad man. And knowing those things are true and that that line will hopefully continue to gel better gives me hope for a better tomorrow because we want, as we talk about a lot of these older quarterbacks aging out, I am hitching my wagon to these young guys to say, hey, we're going to have a crop that's going to sustain us through this next wave. And Joe Burrow is a huge part of that. Um... As is number one on the bottom five for me, Brandon, we talked ad nauseum about it, the zapping, the Patriots quarterback situation for Monday Night Football, number one in my bottom five here, just hilarious from top to bottom between a quarterback kicking another guy in the nuts <laughs> and then a head coach lying to a halftime uh, sideline reporter about the plans for the quarterback at halftime. It was all delightful and gave me a ton of fun on Monday Night Football. So it's it's one of those things, It's so it's so bad, it's good, and I appreciated that about it. Mike, I love it, and I'm going to try to be just as short with my number one thing of week seven. You got to go with the Carolina Panthers, the worst team in football. Uh, but I think I would like to big up Philip P.J. Walker and and what the third-string quarterback has been able to do with the Island of Misfit Toys, especially after Run CMC is, is in uh, San Francisco. Well, Brandon, I just thought this you, was a you, huge win. You just said it. We clearly figured out Christian McCaffrey was the problem this whole time. <laughs> cancer. He's a Hold, cancer. Holding this team back from greatness, Christian <laughs> McCaffrey goes over, causes the 49ers to lose in embarrassing fashion to the Chiefs immediately, oh, and yes. watches his former team win. Listen, Brandon, I don't make the I don't make the news. I just read it, and that's the headline that we're seeing right now. So, uh, yeah, congratulations to the Carolina Panthers for surviving Christian McCaffrey. Uh, it would be it would be fun to run with that, but uh, yeah, no, it was. I will say the young core for Carolina that they're probably going to keep around, like Shaq Thompson, Derek Brown, Brian Burns, DJ Moore. All of them, all of the guys who you picked to stay, balled the entire hell out, and that has to be very encouraging for a franchise that now has a bunch of draft capital to walk in and try and really rebuild this thing in the post Matt Rule era. That is top five, bottom five from the NFL weekend. That was. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, going to talk to SEC Network host Peter Burns about what to do with LSU and who we actually think can swing this college football playoff thing as we near November. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. And now that the Boston Celtics have slayed the boogeyman in the Miami Heat, Boston fans, we feel a little bit more confident about the situation. You can decide right now, and if you're new to DraftKings, you can also check this out. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code GOJO. That's code GOJO for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. 
All right, excited to have back with us here uh, SEC host Peter Burns joining us back on the podcast. And I'd imagine in rare form right now, Peter, because you and I talked a little bit at the beginning of this season as LSU got off to a bit of a rocky start in the Florida State game and everyone wasn't sure what was happening. The ship has been righted here in a big way, so I'd have to imagine that's drastically increased your mood. Um, yeah, but it's also drastically cost my uh, bank account as well, Gojo. So because like I, there was no way that I was going to take a weekend off for LSU Alabama. Like I already knew that Alabama was going to win by three, four touchdowns. So I was like, you know what? There's no sense in even like trying to look at flights. But there I am in a drunk enough stupor after LSU beats Ole Miss the way they did. Just what outscored them like 42 to three in the second half. And now I'm all punch drunk. Me and Brian Kelly are going to be besties forever. And I'm just like. Screw it. We're, go- we're going to that trip no matter what. And I spent way too much money on it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, again, I told myself I wasn't going to get emotionally invested in LSU football until BK's second season. And yet here I am already just like starting to talk trash to my wife, who's a big time uh, Alabama fan. Brutal. It, it, well, I mean, I feel like it's just as much about, right, Alabama looked a little bit vulnerable coming off of Tennessee. LSU's been on this nice upward trajectory. Where did it change? That's my question, because I haven't probably been dialed in week to week on LSU football as much, but watching the last two games that they've played and seeing the way that this offense has responded, I saw Jim Daniels was SEC Player of the Week this week. Where did that shift start for LSU? Um, I, I think it came into a confidence, and I think, I mean, like you guys, we, we talk about it a lot in college football with the transfer portal and everything. I mean, last year at a bowl game, LSU had 39 scholarship guys. Right. I mean, like there were so many different new faces that I think even Brian Kelly was trying to understand who he had as a team. And I think finally he's gotten to that point. And I think there has to be that buy in. And and I don't know if there was a whole lot of buy in from guys. And I'm, I'm listen, you know what better than I do. I don't think Brian Kelly is going to be the biggest charmer that's going to walk into a locker room and be like, man, I tell you what, the cur- <laughs> charismatic guy right there, like I'll buy some property from him. Like he's he's going to ride you, but he's also going to have some expectations. And I think once this team got together and I, once, I think there was some confidence in what Jaden Daniels could do um, and, and really kind of developing hit that rapport with the wide receivers, all of a sudden you felt like, okay, you know, the defense is not going to be out on the island by itself. They got some game changers on that side of the ball. But now they feel like they could go blow for blow. And more importantly, they feel like if they get into um, a deficit, which they did against Mississippi State, which they did against Florida, they hell, they were down 17-3 to against Ole Miss, they don't feel like they're out of it because they have some semblance of an offensive line and a passing attack now. And that's something that they haven't had in a little bit. Yeah, I thought that was such a big difference watching Saturday. And I get Ole Miss, even just the way that defense is structurally built, is going to open up some rushing lanes for you. But it does just finally reek of that raised floor that I always thought would be the case with Brian Kelly. Because I think before the season, their win total was set somewhere around seven. And given what Brian Kelly's historically done for programs, people can have personal misgivings with you know him personally, however they feel about some of the things he's done. The dude can coach ball well enough with the talent around there to get you to seven wins pretty easily. I thought I always thought that was a laughable floor to kind of set for this LSU program that, yeah, I, I get it was as barren as it had been in the cupboard at the end of last season, as you guys have probably seen in some time around there in Baton Rouge. But the minute things stabilized there, and that seemed to be what that hire was all about, I felt like this was sort of inevitable. 
Yeah, and, and a lot of it was behind the scenes as well, too. As much as we talk about like the X's and O's on Saturdays, it was, hey, how can there be a stabilization of the program, hey, in the strength and conditioning room, in in kind of quality control, and just, hey, everybody is going in, in an organizational um, uh, same direction, which is not something I don't think, frankly, that LSU has had since really Nick Saban was there. I mean, you think of the chaos of the years and less miles that were up and down, same with Ed Ogeron, and it kind of felt like, okay, listen, we're going down this path, like we're all going to head down this way. And I think there's a trust factor for everybody involved right now. And I think where it stands, and you know what as good as anybody, is offensive line. You know, this is the first time that I've looked at an offensive line outside of 2019 at LSU that I thought, damn, that's a good offensive line. They're moving people off the ball, and they're having manageable third downs. And, and they're finding a way with Mike Dembrook, the, uh, the offensive coordinator, to, to put him in a situation for Jane Daniels to make, like, quick, quick throws. They're not asking him to sit into the pocket and, and make third and fourth reads. It is, boom, get the ball out of their hands. And that negates what type of pass rush anybody's going after. Much like the reason how Tennessee and Hidden Hooker have had so much success especially against Alabama. It was like, well, Dallas Turner and Will Anderson never had a chance to get a foot in the ground and get after Hidden Hooker because he got rid of the ball so damn fast. Having an athlete at quarterback changes the the picture so much because you're right. Everything is not only just first read, get it out passes. If that's not there, turn and burn, take off and run. The amount of first downs and easy yards that Jaden Daniels found just in scramble rushes it, it that seems to be probably the biggest difference. I know they had the rare players only meeting on offense where Jaden Daniels basically told the receivers my bad. That seems to have worked on the other side, but it is a simplified picture. And I mean, Mike Dembrock was at Cincinnati not too not too long ago, and I think did some similar things with the quarterback there in years prior. Where it was, hey, we got an advantage here that can erase some of the help that you're going to get in the box. Let's go out and use it. And, and that was one of the things that, you know, people thought with Miles Brennan at being quarterback and Garrett Nussmeyer, hey, they're set. And there was a lot of eyebrows that were like, wait a minute, kind of furrowed when all of a sudden they brought in Jane Daniels because they're like, okay, well, really, why are you doing this? And a lot of people originally thought, well, the offensive line is going to be so terrible that you're going to not necessarily use it as a threat, but at least you have some type of run off, you know, uh, option as far as a quarterback. But the thing is, is it's become Jaden Daniels' passing attack that's really become um, the difference maker. He finally looked at a bunch of different wide receivers. He got Kayshawn Butte back in, in action a little bit more. I mean, there were seven different wide receivers that caught a ball against Ole Miss. And I don't feel like he has run first. I felt like the first week or two, he was run first. Then I think he got real conservative. And then now I just think that the flow of the game has really complemented everything that's going on with LSU. And, and buddy, they are, they are believing. And I, I haven't seen this much hype around an LSU program, obviously, since 2019. But even before that, it feels like there's something brewing with a bunch of young talent. And, and you look at Harold Perkins, uh, like that kid, that's the next Will Anderson. Like write it down right now if you want to look really smart. Like Harold Perkins, he's a true freshman. He's getting on the field. Lane Kiffin afterwards said the game changed when 40 came in. And when Harold came in, dude, this guy is absolutely legit. Between him and B.J. Ojolari, listen, man, you get a bye week, um, and all of a sudden, you know, that, that monumental pass – uh, task of beating Alabama doesn't seem nearly as, as tough as it did before. 
That's kind of where I wanted to go next with this, because you're you're right about Jaden. I think it's been about building that foundation first and foremost off his ability as a runner. That's the thing with Brian; he's always loved a dual threat at quarterback. That's what he wants in his in his version, the way he see off sees offense. He's always wanted that at that spot. And I think you saw that show up at Notre Dame at times when he had pro passers who maybe weren't as inclined in that way. But the the Bama matchup got set for a night game, which thank God for everyone involved. Oh. I, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, well, how, no, how, pan- how panicked my, and nervous my- were you? <laughs> no, I wasn't because I knew, I mean, think about that weekend, right? We got Tennessee and Georgia and that was going to be in Athens, which is going to be incredible. And CBS still has the, the contract. So they're going to get the first draft pick. Obviously it's going to be more than likely one versus two or one versus three, assuming, you know, uh, uh, Kentucky ends up getting by or, or Tennessee gets by Kentucky this weekend. And so we felt like there was a pretty good chance of LSU and Alabama being a night game. And, you know, what's interesting is in years past, I've always thought that the bye week actually hurt LSU going into Mm -hmm. Alabama, especially now because they've got so much momentum. I mean, they want to play Alabama tomorrow. But in years past, there were so many people that, like, we can't get over the Alabama hump that LSU put them up on a pedestal. You know, the LSU put Alabama in, like, this Darth Vader, like, just, you know, super, super villain that wasn't, you know, uh, beatable. And I think them beating them in 2019, them coming close last year with a horrible team and beating Alabama, there is a belief that, that something special can happen. And I'll tell you what, I'm still shocked, absolutely floored, that both Will Anderson and Nick Saban said that tennis, uh, the Tennessee game, Alabama was intimidated. Like, that's shocking. I mean, have you ever heard that from Nick Saban or Will or, or an Alabama team saying that they were intimidated before a game? Like, I, I can't believe they no. said it out loud. It was, it was stunning, and I know part of my brain is always wired to do the thing where, all right, if Nick is saying it, there's a purpose, and usually that purpose, and with Will Anderson saying it might be to the rest of the team, hey, we saw that look in your eyes, and we can't have that again, because I don't think they would just say that to just leak the blood in the water for everyone. That's got to be a message to the rest of that team. That can't be our response to those kind of situations anymore, because Nick is usually that calculated. I, I know, but, but I keep looking at this and go, all right, at what what point does a leopard it, it, that's truly their spots right i mean against texas on the road they did not look good they had a bunch of penalties against texas a&m they did not look good have a bunch of penalties okay um you know and then the, you lose to tennessee like at what point is this alabama team still living on the threshold of 2020 and other incredible teams that that nick saban has built and, you know, I think that's why I look at this, and I don't know what the line's going to be of this game. I would imagine it'll probably be Alabama, uh, you know, minus 14 or so, two touchdowns. But LSU fans do feel like, you know, that crowd, obviously on a, on a Louisiana Saturday night, is, is going to be absolutely uh, crazy. And they feel like they got some game um, changers over there defensively that they haven't had in a couple of years. You mentioned that environment, too. The penalties were a huge part of that with that Alabama team on the road in Neyland. What else has stuck out to you about why that team seems to be different this year? I know we talked a lot about deficiency in the skill room maybe this season compared to seasons prior than that, some of the lack of discipline. Is there anything else that stuck out as to why this Bama team that we're talking about, doom and gloom, who's still in the top 10 right now, who's still very much in the mix, but looks a little bit different or feels different than years past? I think it's because there were there there was always a moment, right, in Alabama football. It's like when they wanted to lean on you, they could lean on you. 
right? I mean, we saw that in some of the Alabama-Notre Dame games where it's just like, listen, hey, here it comes, murder ball. It's going to be joyless. You're not going to like it. They're going to just have seven-minute drives. And I don't feel like that offensive line has gelled as well as they want. Now, Jameer Gibbs is incredible, but it's almost like they're using Jameer Gibbs more as an option out of the backfield to catch the ball, almost like a safety valve, as opposed to, hey, this is Eddie Lacy or Derrick Henry, where we're just going to make you cry and, and scream uncle until you tap out. And in ways that LSU actually works pretty well right now, is I think they can stop the run. You know, they did a fairly decent job early in the game against Ole Miss, against one of the best offensive rushing attacks. And it was actually the passing attack that that hurt LSU, not the rushing attack. So, you know, to me, I think there's going to be a couple of different mismatches that they can make. And I'll tell you this. I have been really impressed with the way that Josh Williams runs the ball right now for LSU. Behind a, a young offensive line, they're starting to figure out that this guy – He's almost like this like human bowling ball that, yeah. for whatever reason, he finds you know three yards and gets him into five or six. He reminds me of Jacob Hester and, and our boy and the way he, he ran for LSU back in the day. Um, again, there's just a ton of talent. And, and again, Gojo, if we were having this conversation, you told me I would give you eight and four before the season in Brian Kelly's first year. I'd be like, dude, don't even play the season. Like, like I'll take it to the bank right now. Let's move on. And so now I almost feel like this is the the greatest house money situation going in for LSU is that it's like, hey, man, like we're over and beyond where we thought we were going to probably be in year one of this quote unquote rebuild. Let's just go out there and let it hang out and have some fun. And and, I mean, Louisiana Saturday nights and um, fun will be had either way. I, I think I remember the last time you and I hung out in Baton Rouge and my liver still hurts. Yes, exactly. I was just going to say, I was having drunken recall flashbacks of that moment in time. I'm very jealous that you're going to be down there for that. I know that's going to be a wild experience. You mentioned two things, though, that made my brain fire. Uh, eight and four and SEC coaching. What the hell's going on with Jimbo Fisher, man? Like, how did this get so bad so fast for Texas A&M? Because I learned a couple of weeks ago that they've got two nuclear reactors on campus there, and I'm very worried that there's going to be a mishap at one of them if this keeps up. Uh, again, well, would that would that get you out of the contract? I don't know how meltdowns work as far as you're actually if it, if it's one of the addendums in the contract in in, in the I mean, stipulations. Listen, I'm not sure. We already had a fine bomb caller calling in talking about a hitman in this situation, so I feel like everything's on the table for Texas A and M fans. You know, it's crazy. And here's the deal: like I, I it, part of it is Jimbo being Jimbo, and 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 the fact that he wants to call offense, and you look at him on the sidelines, and he's got a notepad and it's got it looks like he's doing his taxes on the sidelines right like it just it it doesn't look like football in 2022 um and a lot of it has to do with the young offensive line I mean they played three freshmen over that offensive line so this year was never about them contending as much as the media wanted because of the recruiting rankings it was all about next year and building up like this ramp up to 2023 but I don't think anybody ever thought that it was going to get this bad and I can't help but think it was Texas A&M putting themselves in a situation. Like, after the pandemic, you know, you decide to give this monster extension to Jimbo Fisher. For what? Like, I mean, was he threatening going somewhere? Was was there another job calling or something like that? Like, I, I don't understand what that did. And, and all of a sudden, it's become this car wreck where everybody wants to watch. Even outside the SEC, everybody wants to talk about what's going on with Jimbo. Kind of like, I like watching Iowa football on offense. 
because I'm yes. like, I got to see how bad this thing really is. And it's really that bad. That's exactly how it feels for A&M right now. And I don't know if there's any quick way about it because Jimbo ain't going to sit there and go, hey, you know what? You guys are right. Like Jimbo's stubborn as hell. I, I would think that he would go out there and go, let's spend a boatload of money and go get the best offensive coordinator, get it out of my hands. I'm going to be a CEO delegator going forward. But when you got guaranteed money coming your way, why would you do anything other than the way? Like they, no one has any leverage over Jimbo Fisher. He can do whatever the hell he wants right now. It, it, the Iowa football thing is actually sneaky the perfect comp because for Kirk Ferentz and company, when your son's the offensive coordinator and things aren't going well and you've been empowered by everyone around that program to do as you please, what incentive do you have to make change if that's not something that you ultimately want to do? Now, now the thing is, are athletes or student athletes still wanting to go to A&M? Yes. Are the recruiting still there? Yes. So I, you know, I'm not worried that Jimbo, quote unquote, loses his team until, A, you just see that the message is not being delivered. I don't think the message is not being delivered. I just don't think they're very good. But then when all of a sudden guys are like, man, this is this has become a, a shtick. Like, this is this is not cool. I don't want to go there. But I think the timing of it is monster that they get this figured out. Because remember, in 2025, if not 2024 – Texas and Oklahoma are coming into this conference, and this was all set up for for this to have A&M kind of be lapping, especially Texas, once they entered the conference going, bro, you got another five or six years until your roster is ready. And if they lose this slippage, slippage right now, A&M does not want to play little brother to Texas if that, if that ends up being the case when they come here into the SEC in a couple of years. Well, and I think insult gets added to injury at that point, too, if it's happening the way Texas appears primed to make it happen right now. Where if you're Jimbo, you're supposed to be this quarterback whisperer, and all of a sudden, we're not seeing any sort of whispering right now. We're not even seeing shouting or normal-level talking work right now. Meanwhile, on the other side, Sark's got one loaded up in the clip right now with the quarterback he's got on campus. You've got the Arch Manning specter looming and an offense that looked great last year with Casey Thompson and Hudson Card at the helm. And I feel like if Texas were to waltz in and Sark is, you know, listen, there's plenty of things that they're going to have to overcome as a program with a fan base and a booster base that certainly has expectations that need to be met now. But if they're able to do that on offense and recruit in Texas while in the SEC on that side of the ball in a way that directly affects your bottom line as A&M, that's all of a sudden where the hell to pay could really start to have the rubber meet the road. Well, and where it's tough as well, too, is when you look at it, all of a sudden Josh Heupel in year two, look at what that Mm -hmm. offense is doing, okay? I mean, even Lance Leipold at the beginning of the season before Daniels went down, I mean, hey, he was able to flip a switch. Like, it could be done. Look at Lane Kiffin and what he brought, you know, when he took that job after taking over for Matt Luke. Like, it can happen. I mean, listen, if you really want to get crazy, what you do is you tell Texas A&M, listen, we're going to keep Jimbo forever as long as uh, oil is $100 a barrel or whatever. Let's just go get Lane Kiffin. We'll pay him $15 million. He'll be the highest paid offensive coordinator in the history of the world. Like, just go complete, like, uh, Avenger style on this. And um, because I can't help but, man, if all of a sudden A&M could find it, this offense, I think defensively they're going to be great. The, the fan base is, is, is healthy. They've got great boosters. Like, you just have to find some semblance of offense. It's like what LSU fans dealt with all the way going into 2019 where they kind of stumbled upon Joe Brady and, and Joe Burrow and Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase and those guys. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point about that, and it, it would – 
if you're already, and I understand that this is all unsubstantiated, but you know, the Nick Saban talk about how much you've spent on the recruiting. If you're going to be spending money getting the players there, you've already spent money on the head coach. You're in for a penny, in for a pound. You may as well just buy the rest of the best staff that money can buy on this and call it a day. Day. I, I mean, again, at, at some point, why not? I mean, you got to burn. You know, I mean, there was a famous thing that Kirby Smart last year said in the championship: burn the bridges. You know, burn the boats. Like, there's no turning back. Like, we're going all in on this thing. And I don't think. And again, I still think that if Jimbo is smart, um, that this is could be the best thing that could have happened. Because let's say had they gone eight and four or seven and five, and oh, they're young, but we're coming. Maybe he doesn't make changes. But maybe this is so horrifically bad this year that he has to completely reevaluate everything. Georgia reevaluated everything with Mark Rick at some point, right? They're like, man, we're good, but how do we get elite? And guess what? They went all in, and Kirby made them be elite because he forced that that administration to do things they weren't normally comfortable with as far as, hey, how much money they're putting behind the products and, and coordinators and staffing positions. Like, Texas A&M has to get to that point, but they have to make some kind of move offensively. Uh, Peter, we've talked a lot about the SEC teams in here, but as we're getting towards November, and we're going to see the playoff conversation start to ramp up soon. I know you've got eyes on everything here. Where are you at on this Clemson team this year? Because it looks like they're going to be undefeated going through an ACC slate that's not going to challenge them much down the stretch of this year. And while we can look out and probably see, a but like, do we have to start preparing for this year's Clemson team to somehow find their way into the playoff? I mean, again, I would have never thought that the, that right sitting here, we would be looking at a ranked South Carolina team as maybe the biggest test to Clemson the remainder of the season. And, 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 and I think South Carolina is good. It's a great story with Shane Beamer, but I don't think that they have the roster necessarily to compete, especially because that game's going to be over at, at, at Death Valley. It's going to be at Clemson this season. But, yeah, I mean, that that's the product of it. Davos Winnie should thank his lucky stars every single year that he plays in the ACC and there's not anybody with any type of heartbeat that gives them a run for their money right now. And, and that's not – and listen, I think Clemson, you know, is, is a good team. Okay, I think Clemson is right there with like a TCU or or maybe even Oregon. Like I think they're they're contending to get into that conversation, but are they dominant like Georgia? Are they dominant like Tennessee or Ohio State? I, I, even Alabama? I don't I don't necessarily think I see that, but I don't know how you change it um, right now. And I mean, you know, the chaos right now really is how do you get anything that's not going to be two SEC teams? and two Big Ten teams in the, in the, in the college football championship. And i got to be honest with you, if you're looking for the best product, I've seen – I think Michigan's for real. I think Ohio State's as good as anybody, if not the number one team in the country right now. Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee take two of those teams. I'd put those – you know, that group, Big Ten versus SEC, kind of like Live Golf versus PGA Tour, like I'm all in for it. Like just, you know – Dark side, good side, whatever. Like the battle of all battles. Oh my God. The the future college football TV battle royale just played out in front of us in the four-team CFP in the remaining years that we've got it. It would be fascinating. And you're right. Like I think right now, and I'll be curious... I got Michigan and Michigan State this weekend to really look under the hood with that Wolverine team, but they've done exactly what they did last year, and I still think there's untapped potential in downfield passing, which is why you made the J.J. McCarthy move at quarterback. You did sort of what Clemson did years ago, moving and making the switch 
um, from Kelly Bryant to Trevor Lawrence because you saw, all right, there's a ceiling to try and improve this thing. And I think Michigan, yeah, I would absolutely have more faith in them right now just because we're talking about a Clemson team that, yeah, has a weird relationship with Syracuse historically in that conference. But having to make that quarterback change mid-game when you thought DJ had been trending a little bit better is really concerning to me. Yeah, over the next couple of weeks, it'll be interesting to see how much more playing time Cade gets. And, you know, do they look at this and go, all right, is this is he the next Trevor? Like, is this kind of the taking the next step? Right. I mean, listen, once once you saw Nick Saban do that in the middle of a national championship game, go from Jalen Hurts to a tongue of Iloa, like like the seal is off. You can make this change whenever does Dabo try to make this change here in the next couple of weeks a little bit more just to kind of figure out going, is there another level? Because you can't help but think, but when I saw Cade come in here, I felt as if that there was a little bit of a different spark. And sometimes you just kind of need that. And and a credit to DJ Uangale yeah. for, for the way he handled that situation of him saying, I would have benched myself as well. Like, you know, we, we all got to perform. Like, man, that that's stand up. And that kid's been under a lot of pressure. Um, and he's still a pretty damn good quarterback. It's just to be the one percenter in college football, man, you, you got to be something special. And he just he hasn't found that consistency quite yet. Yeah, this in a way, this feels kind of like, was it 2014 or 2015, the undefeated Florida State team that ended up making it to the college football playoff? coming off that championship season where it was the first rattle out of the box and they went undefeated, but all along it felt like you were kind of MacGyvering this thing together, which Dabo deserves a ton of credit for. Two new coordinators for the first time in a season in his career. DJ not being in that alien class of quarterback that they've gotten used to. The wide receiver room looking a little bit different. What he's managed to do, to me, this is a banner season as far as Dabo Swinney, the coach, being remi- you know, reminding people that he knows what he's doing to an extent because they've gotten by. I think Brandon Streeter's called better offense than we've seen around there in a while, but this is a culture year for them as far as what Dabo's instilled in the program. All right, two questions. So if I threw Clemson right now in the SEC West or East right now, because both of them are, 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 are fairly, but let's say SEC West, Clemson's record at the end of the year would have been what? Um, Man, I'd say this year you probably could have penciled them in for at least three losses. I think I think that would be, be being fair to their defensive because elite defensive personnel, even if schematically I don't think it's offering you the same level of – consistent advantage that it did when BV was at the helm there. But yeah, I'd say three would be fair. Okay. Uh, and then the other part of it is the team I'm trying to figure out is TCU right now. Okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, again, they, you know, they, they fall behind uh, K-State and then K-State got banged up in that game, but then they come back and, and win that game. They were, they were down what 17 or so to Oklahoma state. I'm trying to figure out, Hey, how good is this TCU team that still has to go on the road to Texas and still go on the road to Baylor if this is a team that we could look at as a college football playoff, I don't think that they're a contender to win it all. But, I mean, we're still looking at who's going to get that slot, you know, as far as one of these top four teams. And I don't know if I'm I'm willing to put TCU in that group yet. I think TCU is in that group where they would be – because what you talked about before, the foursome we got if it was two Big Ten and two SECs in that way, would be – a ton of strength, like legitimately four teams that I think anyone in that group could win the national title out of that bunch because we've seen Georgia offensively come back down to earth a little bit. Certainly the defense isn't what it was last year. Alabama more vulnerable. Tennessee here for the first time doing this. 
all of those reasons, like, that seems like a foursome where anyone could win. In that next group of who could be the team four in a normal year, who could be Oklahoma, Notre Dame, Washington, Michigan State, who we've seen get waxed in game one in the semifinal for college football's playoff, I think TCU could absolutely fit in that mold just because Garrett Riley's got an offensive scheme that provides you an advantage, and they got the legitimate game breaker. Like, Quentin Johnston is going to be someone who I think gets a ton more Sunday talk as the year goes on. He is far too tall and big to be as quick and athletic as he is, and he legitimately changes what you've got to do on defense on every snap. You've got to account for him everywhere. So as long as you've got that, and then Max Duggan's, I think, the perfect example of a good, not great college. Like, he's a very good college quarterback, and that's going to be about it. Like, I think some of the accuracy numbers are inflated because that offense puts you in some pretty easy positions. So I'd say they definitely fit that archetype of they could be the fourth team coming into this that ultimately isn't going to have a chance against, I think, some of that upper echelon talent. And then USC and in Oregon over on the flip side. I mean, it's just going to be hard for me to stomach an Oregon team if they go undefeated the rest of the way and wins the Pac-12 of how do you have a college football team that already lost by, what, 46? And I know it was the opener, but, I mean, it, it ain't like it ain't like losing by two touchdowns. I mean, that was an absolute debacle week one uh, against Georgia. I, the first round of college football rankings are going to be fascinating to me with what the committee does with that Clemson team relative to the ones that you mentioned. Because traditionally, there's been a few hangups that'll make sure you're never involved in the CFP conversation. Obviously, losing two games is the place to start, but you mentioned the other one. You can't get clubbed. You can't get beaten to death on a big stage by somebody else. One touchdown loss, road loss somewhere where it's competitive till the end and then you lose it. If you've got injuries that we can point to, usually you can excuse some of those things away. But a loss of that margin, especially in an out-of-conference matchup, is usually a non-starter, even though Oregon's played a lot better football lately. And, and last thing, like, what if you're talking about a Tennessee team, okay, that the only loss that they might have is to Georgia, but they don't play in the SEC championship game, right? So let's say they go 11-1. and one, They look they looked absolutely great, but then there you got Oregon, and, and they're in the mix, all right? Would you sit there and say, all right, well, I'm not going to put Tennessee in, but I'm going to give Oregon an opportunity, and they may have to face Georgia again? Like, uh, you know, the committee is uh, – is, yeah. Every year the committee's going to have some issues, right? I mean, it's going to get even crazier once we get up to 12. Yeah, I think I think the Oregon situation is the one I'm most excited to watch down the stretch because I can argue you change so much over the course of especially college football seasons that you could argue for improvement after that game. And they're going to have opportunities between Washington, Utah, and back-to-back weeks, what'll be a ranked Utah team. And then I think the biggest thing, because you've gone to round-robin play, or not round-robin play, but you've gone to a divisionless model for how you're going to structure the championship this year meaning you could get Oregon and USC in the championship in a game that on the weekend the playoff committee watches together you have the brand everyone was already interested in USC going up against an Oregon team that could have a few ranked wins under their belt post Georgia by that point and have some of the name recognitions like you've already had game day go out there you've had a bunch of the narrative things you kind of need happen to build momentum in these conversations yeah, I still don't. I, I still don't like. I mean, the Pac-12 needs to go away from the visions because of that situation where they can help themselves. But again, I look at the Big Ten, and, and maybe the Big Ten doesn't necessarily need it because the Big Ten West is always so atrocious compared to the East. But um, you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose a little sleep, and I'll be upset whenever we lose SEC East and versus West. I mean, it's always kind of the game inside the game. And if you're, you know, if you're having more teams in the college football playoff, why does it matter? 
Like, you know what I mean? I, I kind of like the idea of keeping it east and, and east and west. So, um, I don't know. The game is changing, and uh, I'll be the man like, get off my yard one of these days, you know. I think um, the SEC is one of the few conferences where you could actually argue because Georgia and Tennessee have become a thing on the east and there's been so much improvement that there's precedent for that. Like, the Big Ten, no chance. You've got to ditch that. The West just it can't be you feeding the West to the East every year. The coastal and the ACC, as much as I've loved coastal chaos is kind of in the same spot. The SEC is the one that you could argue historically and what they are modern right now could absolutely still merit keeping those separate as divisions for the reasons you mentioned. Reasons you mentioned. Although when we start talking about college football right now, and we're talking about, we might get down the road where they're not, might not be same revenue sharing going back and forth. Yeah. Or, 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 I mean, because I think that could be the case to keep the Pac-12 teams happy or the Big 12 teams happy. At what point does a conference just say, you know what, we're going to do the best to produce, you know, protect our, our blue bloods, our, our, our money makers right now? I, I mean, right now, everyone's all fine and dandy and, oh, we got to have these equal schedules and stuff like that. But make no mistake about it. I, I wouldn't pa- put it past Kevin Warren. And I don't know if necessarily it's a bad thing to sit there and go, we need to do whatever we can protect to, to protect our bell cows. And that's going to be Ohio State, and that's going to be Michigan. No, you're right. It's the direction this is all moving into. To say that that's not a distinct and very real possibility would be to ignore every sign that college football has been sending us on the top level. Uh, PB, always fun, man. Great catching up with you. Uh, Start hydrating now. Like I'd I'd hope that you're mixing in more waters than you've ever had in your entire life getting ready for this trip in a couple weeks. And nothing but respect for the great Alabama Crimson Tide here in the Burns household. So I'm just, I'm just making sure, as you can hear my wife in the other, gra- in the other room. So, uh, and you can, you can, it's hilarious because, you know, my son, he is a diehard LSU fan. He turns three on Halloween. My daughter is a diehard Alabama fan. And so it's already like Bloods and Crips here in the propaganda here in the Burns and household. So uh, it's Tupac, it's Biggie. It's uh, it's me versus you on Twitter. It's all kinds of good uh, rivalry here in the Burns uh, household. Rivalry week is every week in the Burns household because of effective parenting. Thanks, PB. Appreciate it, man. See you, bud. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. All right, Brandon, we mentioned off top, it is the last full week of October, which means it's the last full week for you to inject a good bit of spooky season into the most meaningful part of this podcast. Brandon, do you know what time it is? It's October for yes. Thank you for translating. Ow, this, that, and the third. Ow, ow, this, that, and the third. Ow. You hear him rolling. You hear him howling around. 
howling are you okay oh my god Mike werewolves of London werewolves of London from Warren Zevon 1978 from the album excitable boy oh man shout out to the suggestions Mike I didn't know that song existed I'm glad people were suggesting things but it's it that's just you hey, didn't hear you it, what? but people that will is, hear it. That is living proof. Brandon, absolutely listening and opening to coaching here at Gojo Show on Twitter. Yes. Download, subscribe, rate, and review Gojo wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a five-star rating. And keep up the suggestions. We have got one full week left now. October 31st is next Monday. It'll be the last day you hear Brandon inject spooky season into this, that, and the third. And we need your help to get him over the finish line, clearly, because we're on Werewolves of London. Uh, <laughs> Brandon... <laughs> Let's get to this. <laughs> this surprising news, and I think going to trigger a little bit of nostalgia for some people. Jim Nance announced that he will be stepping away from calling the NCAA men's basketball tournament after next year and will be succeeded by Ian Eagle. This was first reported by the New York Post. CBS has confirmed this news. Nance has been part of CBS's coverage of the tournament since 1986. And Brandon, he is the author of my favorite attempted flex of all time. I don't remember how long. Jim Nance had a lot of quirky stuff attached to him over the years. He famously had that chart about the level of burnt he wanted his toast at a given restaurant that he would carry yes. with him, like an old person at the blackjack table. Yes. But it is still doesn't, not my also, favorite. Doesn't, doesn't, he, doesn't he do the thing uh, with the tie? That is my favorite Jim Nanceism of all time. Really? Is the short stretch where Jim Nance, at the conclusion of every Final Four, would present, I think it was the most outstanding player of the tournament, with his tie. And it was this awkward exchange where he is giving some 18 to 22-year-old kid his sweaty tie that he's worn there and thinking that it means the world to this player <laughs> to have Jim Nance's fucking tie in their hands. You think, I didn't, I, Mike, I didn't even get to the point where I thought it, it could possibly be important. Like, I didn't know why this was going on. Like, I, I just, I, I've never understood it. But it's Jim Nance, and he speaks slowly, and you like hearing him talk, and he sounds like a sport that you watch. So you just kind of respect all of it. So I just looked this up uh, on Barrett Sports Media. Brandon Contis did this article. I guess um, – Jim Nance has not um, given a tie-out to the championship recipient since 2016. 
Um, Nance said it became like who would want yeah so Jim Nance essentially became self-aware in 2016 and said it became like who would want Jim Nance's sweaty tie well first off I don't sweat while calling games I don't sweat through a tie it was meant to be a quiet gesture that no one would know about but once it got hijacked I thought you know what I'm not going to put that burden on anyone where a media guy is going to come up and make fun of it and belittle the kid and take that moment away from him so I opted not to do well, now I feel sad that Jim Nance felt bad about this, but the audacity of no. that moment to think it was a sweet thing to begin with is wild. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, no, no. Now I'm back where you were and you began. Like, who the hell do you think you are, Jim Nance? <laughs> like, don't nobody from Loyola Marymount want your tie or anyone else who makes it to the, to the big dance. Walking up to Sister Jean and just handing her this tie. I mean, it's like it's like yeah. Back in the day in Notre Dame, when we were like had to wear suits, and it was we needed a tie, and everyone was borrowing each other's ties. Like yes, like it's it's something that we need. Like this, like I don't know, Mike. That's something that that's something that gets like left in the locker room. Like that doesn't even make it home. I mean, well, I love the idea that some kid who wins a national title is going to have the piece of the net that he cut off and Jim Nance's tie hanging over his piece of the award or a plaque commemorating this. I hope Jim Nance does it for his last Final Four. I hope he takes the last one and says, fuck them kids and give some kid his tie. I I hope so, too. But kids could care less about the National Broadcast Hall of Fame, like all that other shit. Like, they don't even – like, they – Nowadays, those kids know the least about Jim Nance. I would agree. I think Jim Nance definitely hits more with us. Like, Jim Nance's voice sounds like golf to me. Him and Tony Romo are a joy to listen to together. All those different things. But you're right. They probably don't care as much, which is exactly why Jim Nance needs to zig when everyone else would zag and go out on his terms and hand off that damn tie one more time for the internet to take in. Um, Brandon, before we get to that, um, in case you want to take in Jim Nance potentially handing his tie awkwardly to some teenager, early 20-year-old, we'd remind you to get with our friends over a game time. One of the people supporting us, you support them, and they're going to give you a great service in return because Game Time is the fastest growing ticket app. It guarantees the lowest prices on tickets to all of your favorite concerts, shows, and sporting events, possibly even like the Final Four, that you can check out in less than 30 seconds with as a part of. You can look and see on the app as you go in and log in and see, hey, what's in my area tonight? What shows, what concerts, what sporting events? How close are the tickets to the stage? You might wonder... You can go into the app and actually get a look. You can click on and see the view from your seat before you hit checkout and purchase those tickets. That's the game time difference. One of the game time differences. It's an outstanding app. Makes it super easy to go check things out, even day of if you want to be last minute with it, like I usually am. So download the game time app, create an account, and redeem code Gojo for $20 off your first purchase. Again, Gojo for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Download game time. Last minute tickets. Lowest price guaranteed. Brandon, let's get to that. Um, So we had an interesting situation happen after the Buccaneers lost to the Carolina Panthers that we've talked about. A video appeared showing Mike Evans appearing to sign an autograph in the tunnel for one of the uh, for two of the officials that were part of the crew. It was captured by 1340 AM Fox Sports and showed side judge Jeff Lamberth and line judge Trip Sutter calling Evans' name and each getting autographs from the star receiver after the Bucks' loss. Sutter is in his fourth season. Lamberth is in his 21st season. And for the NFL and NFL Referees Association, officials are not allowed to approach players, coaches, and team personnel for autographs since it indicates that they may not be partial in this game. 
and they're reviewing the tape right now to find out if something's going to happen to this. Brandon, I, I, I understand this one from the league standpoint. The thing that I'm baffled by is that these were veteran refs that did this. Like, they got it. They, I'm sure this is the first thing they teach you day one in ref school. The same way you have all the signs up in an NFL locker room about the equipment that you're allowed to wear, what the uniform has to look like, the rules for performance-enhancing drug testing, all those things. I'd imagine in whatever referee locker room you got, don't ask the players for autographs is probably pretty high up on that list. Yeah, during the game or right before the game, but after the game, Mike, I mean, when does professionalism end for the people in the stripes? You know, When like, you're, I, like, when you're away everyone... from cameras. I don't, I, mean, I don't know. There's a prayer circle and, and at the end of the games, a lot of guys switching jerseys, getting undressed. It's very, it's very nonchalant after the game. I'd imagine that some referees can get a little quick signature. Now, I think the timing is terrible. After one of the worst losses, after uh, after uh, a, a play that Mike Evans is still thinking about, second play of the game, him dropping a touchdown pass from Tom Brady, one that would have made a difference in that game. Uh, I think the timing is off, but, hey, you got to shoot your shot. I appreciate Mike Evans. You're right. We don't talk enough about that. The fact that Mike Evans was kind enough to sign those autographs for the officials after this yeah. game, because it looked like it looked like he signed them in the grainy video that I saw. And in which case, if he did, shout out to him for one, not caring about the rules, and two, also just not blowing these guys off and being a jerk about it, which he very well would have been within his rights to do. Yeah, Mike Evans seems like one of those guys that does stuff in the moment, and then afterwards, just kind of like, man, what was that about? Yeah, I wasn't really sure. But yeah, just wait just wait until you're out of the camera site. Like, I'm sure it, this is very easy. You know what? They're probably just jealous. They see the players always exchanging jerseys and autographing them for each other out there. And the refs want to get in on that and do a jersey swap after the game at one point. So, Let's do it. Yeah, it's time. Or maybe, maybe it's more of a Jim Nance thing and they're such veteran refs that they're on their way out. That is true. Trying to blaze a flaming – flaming go out in a flaming blaze of glory before it's all said and done. <laughs> Uh, Brandon, speaking of going out in a flaming blaze of glory, let's get to the third. I've heard of a lot of things. We've seen a lot of players and coaches do farewell tours on their way out, announcing their last year is coming up before retirement. Apparently, that's happening for the McRib now. Um, McDonald's is apparently on their website bringing back the McRib with the announcement, get one while you can because this is the McRib farewell tour. Enjoy your famous pork sandwich as if it's your last. The McRib, which was originally intermittently brought into production um, or brought into semi-retirement back in 2005, is starting on November 20th. Brandon, how in the hell can anyone believe that the McRib is actually going away? Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Like how? Why? Are someone going to be able to take all those little fake little pork pieces from y'all? Or what about them little buns? What about the onions on top? Like, can we make sure y'all don't have the supplies to make this? Because I feel like the McRib may always be on a secret menu somewhere. And this is just a, pl- a plot and a ploy for McDonald's to get us out there and eat that saucy-ass uh, mid-grade sandwich. I don't trust any sandwich that putting cheese on is questionable. And, and putting the cheese on a McRib is questionable. I mean, pretty much everything about the McRib is questionable. This, We've seen the long tradition of 
restaurants like we saw with the Mexican pizza at Taco Bell taking something yes. away only to bring it back with renewed vigor and maybe yep. McDonald's thinks that this can finally be the like maybe in recent years the announcement that the McRib is back has fallen on deaf ears and they want to make people realize hey re- you know enjoy what you've got because it might be gone soon only to bamboozle us again so I would encourage people not to fall for this ploy I would Please instead don't. encourage people to focus on the important things like remembering that McDonald's sells a secret birthday cake on its menu for nine and you can go and call ahead and make sure that they've got the one in stock before you drive to the store. I know it because my brother's done it. Mike, that's amazing news, and I'm very happy to hear that. To bring it back, uh, remember we talked about the adult uh, adult Tappy Meals that were running during October? Yeah. Mike, they're, they're, the figurines, and especially Cactus Buddy, going for like $5,000 on, on eBay right now. Like... People want these figurines. And guess what, Mike? Half of them don't even stand up. They're part plastic toys. I've seen a lot of reviews of these uh, Happy Meals. I still want one, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to let Ronald get in my pockets like that. We have to figure out what dumb thing we can create enough hype around to scam people out of money for. Like, I generally want to deal honestly with people, but if we are going to have so much of society bought in on artificial hype, we need to figure out how to generate some artificial hype better. So I don't know what sort of, like, maybe I'll come up with some sort of, like, custom hype beast candy corn product that I can sling Mm. to the masses here and try and draft off how polarizing a subject that is. I got an idea, Mike. You saw those people popping up on your Instagram doing subscriptions. Oh, Maybe maybe we do 99, 99 cent. Subscription for the Gojo page, and maybe we just eat some shit on there. I don't know. I don't know oh, what this is. I don't know no. what the offering is. So I actually know the offering. So I did. Sorry in advance. My family's podcast yesterday, and I came up with what yes. I think is a brilliant million dollar idea. We have seen on this podcast through Katie Nolan and others. There are a lot of people thirsting after my dad in the year 2022 of our Lord. He's grown True. a white beard. He keeps himself in good shape, and now people are calling mm-hmm. him a zaddy. And while that's bothersome to me, who has less hair than my dad and often gets accused of looking older than my dad, I figured out how to weaponize this for product. So there's this author called Colleen Hoover who writes a ton of books that are really popular right now that are basically just smut they're like okay. those romance novels it's basically okay. like 25 like shades novel. it's not it's not like 50 shades of gray it's like 25 shades of gray and so okay. you've got all these people bought in on it I want to have my dad behind a paywall reading passages from Colleen Hoover novels okay yes okay I like that now how's your dad with reading for leisure um, he generally tends to read like, so all growing up, I don't even know, like, I don't know if people will know this offer, but Clive Cussler has probably had books in a bookstore near you that have an old wooden ship on the cover. I have no idea what he writes about, but I know my dad over the course of my young life read every single one of those fucking books. Really? All the Clive Kesslers? Yeah. Yeah, and I do, and I can tell you, we had my dad read a passage on my family's podcast, and it was pointed out that he read this sultry romance novel like it was a children's book, the way he emphasized it, which only adds to the value of this. So again, you'll get a teaser if you listen to Sorry in Advance, but you're going to have to come behind the Gojo Show paywall in order to hear my dad read smut for the masses. That is going to be our million-dollar idea. We thank you for sticking around to hear it at the end of this damn podcast. If you enjoyed that and that's something you'd pay for, make sure you download, subscribe, rate, and review Gojo wherever you get your podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. And also check out the DraftKings YouTube channel with the Gojo of Michael Jr. playlist to make sure you can see as well as hear us. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you tomorrow.
Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.